Hey everyone, it's uh, David Barnett from davidcbarnett.com, the blog site, YouTube channel, iTunes, SoundCloud, Google Play, Spitcher. No, there's no such thing as Spitcher, it's Stitcher. And any other place where they'll host my podcast, you can find it, David C. Barnett. Um, and today I've got Rob Goddard, who's joining us from the UK. How are you today, Rob? Excellent, Dave. It's good to uh, be online with you to talk about some stuff. Well, I'm glad to have you here because you and I connected after a couple of exchanges on LinkedIn and you are the owner of a business brokerage in the UK. And one of the exchanges that we had that led to a conversation really piqued my interest for two reasons. Number one, in your business brokerage, you offer businesses for sale, but you don't set asking prices. And I want, I want to talk to you a little bit about that. And number two, you started to talk about the process that you use to vet your sellers and the work that you do with sellers before bringing a business to market. And I thought that your process is very, very different from most of the business brokerages that exist in the world, where of course the brokers are eager to obtain a listing because they want to add something to their inventory and, and get it up there for sale. Yours is a little more cautionary route and, um, and you weed out a lot of people who probably aren't ready. And I, and I want to talk about that as well. But first, let's talk a little bit about your background so people have an idea of what your experience is. Because I believe that you got into business brokerage around the 2008 Great Recession, did you not? Well, the same time I did. Uh, actually, before that. Um, okay. but. But working for myself in 2008, yes, that, that, that was a great career decision going from a really comfortable, highly paid job in M&A in November 2008, just just a week before Lehman Brothers went bust and the world went mad in the banking crisis. Okay, so so your M&A experience extends further back. From yeah, I, I had seven, seven years prior to that working for a large M&A brokerage in the UK and okay. I was general manager. And I learned what to do and also learned what doesn't work. And it was out of seven years as an apprentice, as a general manager, um, I thought, do you know what? I can do better. So I, I had the courage of my convictions and I left the security of um, employment and set up as a one-man band with a broadband connection from a bedroom. That's it. Okay. And, and you've been successful over the last few years. And that today you actually have four different businesses that are running. I do, yeah. What, before you got into M&A, what kind of background, what were you doing before then? First 20 years was banking. So I've always been in financial services. And, okay. Uh, um, so that was the first half of my career. I spent a year living in LA in a, uh, uh, working for a food ministry, living in a commune, would you believe? In, not, not in Beverly Hills. <laughs> a place called Chino, which is kind of away from Rodeo Drive. <laughs> so I spent a year there um, feeding and homing, uh, housing uh, Hispanics mainly and low income families. And then had my, that was my boot camp. And then I came back to the UK and uh, I knew I didn't want to go back into banking. Okay. Definitely. So it's kind of a year to decompress and rethink what your life was going to be. Yeah, and I entered the world of SMEs when I came back from uh, California in 1998. And uh, I've stayed in the world of SMEs since then, both working for running other people's businesses. And then in 2008, as you mentioned, uh, then I set up and had, uh, I, I thought working for myself would give me so much time 
so much money. Uh, I'd have so much leisure time, I wouldn't know what to do with it. And I'd be in control, 100% control of my company. Well, you know, it's true. I, I tell people that if you work for yourself, you only have to work half days. It's up to you which 12 hours that'll be. <laughs> exactly. 24 seven, and of course, for seven days a week. Yeah. <laughs> um, you had sent me this whole big list here of, of sort of questions or challenges that you put business sellers through. Why don't we start off by talking about this? Because you describe them as weak sellers. You, you don't want to bring a weak seller to the market. What, where, what, was the, what was the beginning of this? Was it your experience at the M&A firm? Is it, is this, so I'm guessing exactly. you had some deals that fell apart because the sellers <laughs> ultimately had problems. Yeah, that's exactly what it is uh, or what it was. Um, at best, it was one in three converted in this large brokerage that I was general manager of in a good month, um, dropping down typically to one in 10. So that's a 90% failure rate. So in that situation... But, but that it, meant that that business was probably pretty on par with the performance of the industry. Indeed. From, yeah, from it's, what we it, know. Yeah, yeah. I, compared to the industry, um, it, it was doing quite well at one in three. Um, and of course, what happens with a business model, financial model like that, the focus is on retainers, which I know is a different situation in the US. But in the UK, it's pretty difficult to charge a retainer each month and then a percentage success fee at the end of it. Um, so what's happened in the UK industry is that the vast majority of intermediaries are focused on the retainers. So that's about getting new clients in, hmm. regardless of whether it was a saleable business or not, taking them to market and hoping for the best. Well, I, whenever I've talked about the business brokerage business, I've, I've always talked about how there are two distinct sales cycles. There's the broker selling their service to the business owner, you know, come and list your business with me. And then once that's been completed and you've secured the listing, then it's the second sales cycle where you have to find a buyer and get them to, to buy the business. And so, you know, if it's really difficult to get buyers to buy the businesses, then it makes perfect sense that that's where the brokers spend their time is trying to get the listings. Yeah. And it's a lumpy financial model. I mean, there aren't many businesses, but evolution is one of them. That's hence the company name. <laughs> We evolved and we, what we wanted to do and what I want to do from day one and now the team, it's part of our value system, is to be highly um, selective as to who we take to market and when. Um, and I have been accused a few times <laughs> over the years by someone who people that have wanted us uh, to instruct us to sell their business and we won't take it on. And I've been accused of being too selective and to take a chance. I said, well, look, I can take £50,000 from you in a retainer over the next 12 months, but we're not going to sell it for the price that you're looking for. Mm. Uh, and I can't do that ethically. Well, and this, and this is what came up in our prior conversation that we had last week, is that when I had my business brokerage, I would do an evaluation of the business and then I would tell the seller what I believed it would sell for. And I would tell them what I thought the asking price should be. And if they wanted to vary too much from that, I wasn't interested in taking them just because I knew then that I would be wasting my time because it, it just wouldn't, the, the asking price, and we're going to talk more about this later, in my mind is a signal in the marketplace. 
And if the asking price doesn't make sense, what you're doing is you're signaling to the educated, reasonable buyers that you don't know what you're doing. And exactly. And, and so those buyers are going to look at that and go, hmm, I don't think I have the time to invest in trying to educate that broker and that seller that what they're doing doesn't make sense. And so they spend their time elsewhere. So the, the, the price has to make sense. And I, I know you have a different method, but um, I had lots of people walk out on me because they didn't want to enter the market at the price I suggested mm. only to have them come back a year later when their engagement expired with one of my competitors. Yeah. I mean, so it, it was initially, it was my passion and my value system and ethics. And now it's the whole company that we share and makes us, makes us different in our marketplace that um, we're very honest with a potential seller to say, look, this is what it's probably worth today. And we usually give a range because these things can't be too precise, but usually they want double or treble what it's really worth, mm -hmm. what their P&L and balance sheet might indicate perhaps. Um, so we tend to take it from another way, which is to ask them what their magic number is. And they answer the question the wrong way round. They start trying to value their business. And we have to stop them and say, no, no, your magic number is the number that you want your business to be worth in order to finish one chapter in your life and start a new one. So we can't come up with that number for you. That's your number, your magic number. And uh, they, they only come up with one of four answers, David. <laughs> one, million, one million pounds? <laughs> million, <laughs> or a okay. million dollars if you're in, in, in the States. <laughs> million, three million, five million, ten million. Depends on the size of the SME. And, and if there's four shareholders in a, a typical SME business, they'll want four million. Yeah. Three shareholders, three million. <laughs> of course. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so we, we have a bit of fun on that. Um, and the pricing, did you want to delve into that now? Well, well let's talk about, uh, you've got 12 things on your list of, yes. of, of sort of, of, let's call them hurdles that you make hurdles, sellers yeah. jump over. Um, that they have to kind of qualify themselves to you. So, so let's talk about that. So the first one is the seller's not committed emotionally and financially to selling their business. What do you mean by that? The emotion, I, I think I know what I mean, but let's, let's talk about it for the viewers. What do you Often mean about this emotional commitment? Yeah, I found in the early years, I found that one in three business sellers changed their mind hmm. mid-process, which is crazy, isn't it? They've started paying some fees are certainly um, committing time, effort, and energy. And you get a phone call um, saying, look, uh, it's gone well, usually around offer time. They're getting offers coming in. And they're saying, look, we've had some offers. They're above our ex and, uh, aspirational price. But do you know what? We're going to take it off the market. Your team have done a great job, Rob, but we're going to take it off the market. We're going to leave it a couple of years, grow it, and then come back to you. So when I used to get those phone calls, I just said, what are you frightened of? Because it doesn't make sense. You're, you're getting more than you were originally looking for in your heart of hearts. Now you're seeing offers coming in from credible buyers. And now you want to take it off the market. And what it is, of course, is it's not a financial transaction selling a business. It's an emotional one. Mm. And um, it's about letting go of something that perhaps you started, you've given birth, you've nurtured it, it's grown up, 
And do you really want to let it go? So, and I speak as an owner manager of four businesses and I, they're my four children. <laughs> it's like selling your child to a stranger. So <clears throat> we want to make sure that the seller isn't going to let us down because we don't, whilst we charge a retainer, our, our profit is locked up in the success fee on the transaction. So I don't want sellers wasting my team's time mm -hmm. and affecting our bank balance adversely by pulling out. So um, that, that is the first. So you did mention that it's a bit like American Gladiator because there's, there's 12 hurdles for a seller. There's only two for a buyer. <laughs> well, and we'll, so it's and we're six times to, harder for a seller to, to persuade us to take them on. Okay. So because you, you want to make sure that they qualify. So yeah, we talked about the emotional commitment. And then number two is the unrealistic price aspirations. We've already touched upon that. The yeah. one, three, five or 10 million. <laughs> we, we always ask, how do you, how do you get, before we laugh, we say, how did you get to that number? And there's no mathematics, no science usually. It's gut feel. So for buyers out there, the affordability of businesses really comes down to the rate of inflation. I mean, as, as, uh, as, yes. as the currencies <laughs> devalue, the businesses will become more affordable. Hey, look, UK the prices been, won't change. <laughs> UK businesses have been great for the foreign buyer because we're 20% cheaper because of Brexit, because of the exchange rate dropped against the dollar. There you go. Yeah, well, it's true. It's true. Um, number three is owner-reliant businesses. Don't so, touch them. I mean, it's, you've got a small, you know, dental practice, for example, with one dentist. I mean, that obviously is an owner-reliant business, but we know exactly who the buyer is going to be. It's going to be another dentist. Talk about it, though, in, in some of these bigger businesses that still have this reliance on one person. Yeah, and I'm, I'm sure this doesn't, this doesn't apply to it, any one of your viewers, <laughs> But do you know, I'll let you into a secret, David, and, 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 and you're following. There are some business owners out there that are control freaks. They don't let go of anything. They need to be in the center of the universe. They are alone in their own um, So whilst that's fun to meet people like that, and I, I guess, you know, you have to be confident. I think to grow, start and grow a successful business. You have to believe in yourself. But I think there's a time at which it's good to listen, listen to the wise counsel of others. Mm. Um, so an owner-reliant business is almost unsaleable, almost. And we won't touch them. We can choose who we take on. That's one of our hurdles. An owner-reliant business, the only way that you're gonna sell it is if the buyer has already got a ready-made replacement managing director or a president CEO. I, I often liken it to the buyer has to be a person with similar back. If they're going to run the business themselves, they have to be a person with similar background and experience, just 20 years younger. It's yeah. almost yeah. Like, a, like a mini me replacement. Yeah. And yeah, and it, I mean, most people we have a conversation with that want are looking at evolution to represent them, to sell, sell their business. When we get to the owner reliance piece, which is quite common, because they say the business runs itself, which we, we take with a pinch of salt. Because um, later on in the conversation, we say, well, how, how do you fill your 70 hours a week then? If the business runs itself, what do you do? Um, and of course, the truth comes out then that they're at the center of everything. <laughs> 
whether it's operations, finance, sales, customer care, they're involved in almost everything. So we say to them, just consider this. The only way you're going to sell your business is if you stay on for two to three years and become an employee. And guess what? The new owner that you sold your shares to is going to tell you what to do. How do you like that? Because mo most business owners I've found are like me. We, we, I'm unemployable. Mm. I've tasted the... Uh, I've tasted what it's like to make your own decisions and be in control of your own destiny. And there's no way, um, 80 odd percent of our former clients could not work for anyone longer than a week. So <laughs> that, yeah, I'm I mean, laughing think, because I, <laughs> I know how true that is. I mean, also, also for a buyer, David, um, there's a concern from the buyer because they're thinking, well, if I buy this business from John, he could be a lightning rod for dissatisfaction the day after the business is purchased because they could be critical of the changes I make in, mm -hmm. in the company I now own. They could be a loose cannon. So it doesn't work for the buyer too well. Well, either. and it's confusing. It's confusing for other staff because there's a new owner, but the old owner is still there. Yeah. And the new person may not be as decisive in their decision-making in the beginning because they're still learning. And so if the, if they're deferring to the old owner to make decisions, all of a sudden there's a confusion of authority and, and it, it can create all kinds of problems. Uh, it it's business. messy. I, but again, just by having that honest conversation with a potential client, we're saying, look, this is the reality. This is a reality check. Can you work for someone else? And of course the majority say no, <laughs> not longer than, not longer than um, at the time it takes to hand over the factory keys. Well, you know, it's interesting because I've had a, a, a past guest on the show. I think you know him, Mike Finger um, yes. from, from the yeah. States. And when he got prepared to, when he was preparing to sell his business, he actually rented a separate office space for himself alone. Ah, and he I think that's why he wouldn't go to the main office because he knew that he would interject himself into everything if he were present. You can't help it. You have the knowledge, you have the background and the history and the legacy. It's, uh, I think that, yeah, that's, that's wisdom, but that, that's Mike. Yeah. <laughs> He's wise. He is. Um, number four is a supplier reliant business. I, I see this quite often and people, people don't understand how the whole business teeters on that one commercial relationship. It's almost worse than a, a customer concentration problem. I agree. I put it on a par personally. It's, it's a no-no for us because when, when we uh, unpack this in a two-hour discussion with a prospective client, they play it down. They say, well, no, I could, I, I could find other suppliers. I say, well, why haven't you? Oh, well, I, you know, I, I know Bill. All right. So you, as the owner, you've got a personal relationship with Bill. Yeah. So, but you're not going, you're going. So who, who has that relationship with Bill? And maybe he doesn't like the fact that you've gone. Maybe he starts then looking around for other businesses to replace your one hmm. in the supply chain. So um, I think a lot of business owners miss it. They don't really get it. And so one of the things we encourage them to do is to look at multi-supply arrangements. And if they've only got one supplier, to find two or three others that maybe not split it three ways equally 
but certainly have existing have contracts in place and relationships in place with other suppliers just to take away some of that risk for an acquirer down the line see in my in my past i worked for I worked for bigger businesses and, and there was at one point young David was considering a career in purchasing. And I met a lot of people in that world. And I remember there was this one business that I, I knew some people there and they told me that they actually split some of their supply to another, to a secondary supplier, even though they had to pay more for that product, they didn't get the volume discounts because they wanted an ongoing relationship with another supply source. Yeah. And it was a strategic decision not to optimize profit, but to make sure that there were, was redundancy in supply. And, and that those people were all professionally trained and educated purchasers. And, and so oftentimes what we have with a small business is we have a generalist business owner who's an expert in their trade, but they don't necessarily have all of the insights into every little facet of the business that they've been forced to take in, take on over the course of time. And so it can lead to these kinds of problems. I always point to the, the dog, the book, um, shoe dog, the Phil Knight story, the story of Nike, because that entire book is about the risk of a supplier relationship until Nike got to the point where they were making their own shoes. They were always at the mercy of the Japanese company that they were importing for. And it, it, there were several times when they almost lost that contract, the whole company would have just folded. Yeah. And it goes back to risk management, doesn't it? The higher the risk, the lower the price an acquirer is going to pay. Right. It, 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 you know, it's, it, it's straightforward. But I, th I think with business owners, they miss it because they've gotten used to it. They've got complacent. They think because they've had the relationship 10 years with Bill, it's always going to be there. And of course, acquirers look at it very differently. They look at it afresh. They look at the risk. They don't have that legacy and that history. Right, right. So the, the, the other thing with suppliers, and it's the same with clients, uh, uh, if you're over-reliant on a client, is there could be a no-novation clause. I don't know whether it's the same in North America. In the contract where the supplier or even the client can say no to an acquisition. Yeah, we, we see this in dealer relationships. Right. So if you're if you're the dealer of Suzuki motorcycles, for example, then yeah, they they can approve or decline on yeah. on who the new person is, uh, yeah. because of course they're cons they're worried about the brand name they own, right? That, that you're kind exactly. of renting as a dealer. Uh, that's their concern. And there might be some sensitivity with the new the potential new acquirer. There may be a conflict of interest with the single source supplier for some reason in the background. It might be a security issue. It might be the country of origin. So, yeah, multi-source multi, multi -source supply. If you want to sell your business for a premium price, multi-source supply every time. Well, and, and the next one on the list, of course, is, is client concentration, which is, which is a little more obvious to people. If, if half of your sales come from three clients, then obviously the buyer is thinking, oh, my God, if I lose one of these, the business may not be profitable anymore. And yeah. again, I, I, it amazes me how business owners will not want, I don't know if it's, if it's a, some kind of cognitive dissonance or an avoidance of the, of the topic in their own mind, but they, they do not want to, you know, deal with the problem. Again, they say, well, they've been buying for me for 25 years. Why would they change? And, <laughs> 
you know, there's all kinds of reasons. Like what if they get acquired <laughs> by yeah. someone in the industry <laughs> who has their own relationship, right? And the, the truth is, is that any number of things could happen. That big customer could be an owner of shopping centers and there might be a global pandemic. Like we don't know. <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're right. And we, we informally, we have a, um, a threshold beyond which we start asking some more searching questions. If there's more than 15% of turnover with one client, that's, a, that's an amber light. Yeah. If it's more than 30%, that's a red light. You know, if a third of your revenue almost comes from one customer and really care if it's because sometimes they say oh well it's one customer but they have different sites so yeah well so if the group makes some sort of change in purchasing decision you lose them all yeah (laughs) so um i think some of it there's probably some cognitive distancing but i i think it's because the if they accept what we're saying it means there's a lot of hard work coming down the track now because now they've got to find new business new new clients to dilute that reliance and um, they're thinking about selling their business and now they've got someone saying "Ah, it's going to be really hard to sell if not impossible you're going to have to find new clients that's going to take you two to three years yeah so maybe you shouldn't be selling today maybe you should have a a medium-term plan to exit and, and in my experience, when people get to the point of talking with uh, professionals about selling their business, then they are already starting to let go in their mind. And when you start yeah. to talk about in finding new customers, well, that's, that's a re-engagement. That's a whole new effort. That's, that's you know, trying to get excited again. And a lot of them, that's not where, where they want to be. Look, I know over the years, we've lost potential clients to competitors but I, I can sleep at night. We ring, we ring them up in a year's time <laughs> to see whether they've sold their business through a competitor and 90% of the time they haven't. In fact, they're quite often very disappointed and bruised and they've spent money and got either no meetings, no offers, and they're, they're disillusioned. And you, you, do, you try to stop yourself from saying, I did tell you, but they don't want to listen. And a lot of business owners, in fact, the large majority over the 20 years I've been doing this, once they've got an idea in their head, it's really hard to shift it. Really hard. You know, they, for whatever reason, they want to sell. And sadly, some business owners sell at a discount or they don't sell at all, having spent money. Well, you know, I, I, you know, once the expectation has been incorrectly set, I agree. It's really hard to change. When, when I had my office open, there was a local competitor that I would sometimes compete against. And I had been handed some of the valuation calculations that they had done. <clears throat> and there was a conceptual error in the valuation stru- stru- methodology that they were using, which double counted operating capital. And so every business they listed for sale was overpriced by the operating capital in the business. Oh, wow. Right. And, and so they actually had a reputation for overpricing businesses, but they didn't understand what they were doing wrong. Mm. But once someone had been there and spent a year with them and then they wanted to come over to me, I would show them what the business was worth and why. And many of those people spent another year on the fence before they were willing to list 
because they weren't willing to let go of that other number, even when I showed them why it didn't make sense. Yeah. And I think that it has to do with in their mind, they had already allocated those funds for what they were going to buy, you know, a new new camper and a, you know, sailboat (laughs) or whatever it is. Yeah, you're right. It's anchored into their brain and it's really hard to shift it. And it's just the thing that we live with in our industry. Um, We have to stay true to ourselves and we only take on a business if we're fairly certain, A, we can sell it. And secondly, at the price that the seller that we've agreed behind the scenes, the seller would accept. Yeah. In number six on your list is a lack of financial reporting rigor. Yeah. So can you, can you describe what that, what that would mean, what that entails? Yeah. So we, we sell just, well, 78% is the most recent figure. We sell 78% of what we take on. So a bit different to the industry figure I gave you at the start of this, we've reversed the market in the UK. And apart from having a talented team that do the hard work, um, and the fact that we're highly selective, we'll only we'll only take businesses to market that we know will sell, and there'll be strategic purchases out there where one and one could equal three. What we have noticed um, where we don't sell a business. So look at the one in five that we don't sell. You know, just over twenty percent we don't sell. Half of that is lack of financial uh, rigor. That one one reason. And that could either be that they don't know their numbers, they don't have management, monthly management accounts, so they might show audited accounts, but that's, you're not selling the past, you're selling the future. And you certainly want to know, if you're buying a business, what the current situation is, because it could hide a lot of things. Um, so we don't take businesses to market without management accounts. We do look, we do give some scrutiny to the filed accounts. Um, to make sure they make sense, because I, I used to think in my um, in my naivety, David, that a set of accounts from an accountancy firm put it uh, registered for tax purposes was sacrosanct. That, and I found that accountants can interpret things in different ways, <laughs> so <laughs> or present the information in different ways and justify it. Yeah. Well, I, I, I talk about this quite often in, in, I call it the three different, the three different accounting methods. And then yeah. of course, if you're a publicly traded firm, then you have to have all kinds of stuff for investor information, you know, to get into your annual reports and whatnot. And if you are a large private firm, every firm needs your tax account accounting done for the tax return, of course. Um, and then the, the, the one in, so the, Public companies got in information for investors, information for management, so people can make decisions. You know, if if your branches are a thousand kilometers away, obviously you can't see what's going on there. You need some kind of information Indeed. system, and this is what you're talking about: an information system that management can use to understand what's going on day to day, which is not necessarily the financial accounting that ends up in the tax returns. Exactly, and some of the software out there you know, attempts to do this, but it's only worthwhile if the information is actually put in there and updated and kept current. You know, I was involved in a large company when they moved to Salesforce and all of the individuals in the field were supposed to have, you know, the sales funnel where they moved clients along to the, the different categories because management wanted 
to know how many people were imminently going to close, you know, a sale. And so being the new guy, I don't know if this was hazing or not. Uh, I did my job as I was asked. And then later, as I got to know more and more people in the company, I found out that other people on Friday afternoon would just move random accounts further along the funnel so that they didn't get yelled at by their manager. And so, you know, you've got, so you've got yeah. management now making decisions and forecasts based on this information, which they believe is correct, which may or may not be. I, have, have you ever gotten into yeah. that kind of stuff in your, in your discussions? Yeah. Yeah. And sometimes it's either we, we find that where a small business starts, they, if they, if they engage the village accountant, as I put it, sort of, yeah. um, and 30 years later, the business itself has really grown, but they haven't changed their accountant. And that worries us because we know if we were going to take this business on to sell, it could be PwC on the other side in due diligence. And it's David and Goliath. Yeah. And so we spend a lot of time looking at the financial reporting. What are the assumptions that have been made? Income recognition is a big one. We're, because at certain industries, it's when they recognize the income so they can affect the bottom line profit. They can inflate it the year before sale, or they're not making the capital expenditure shit that they should if they've got a lot of equipment. Um, so the, there is a lot that can be hidden in the account. So we spend a lot of time with that. I, we, we had a client a couple of years ago that um, engaged us to sell their business. And in the preparation phase, before we went to market and we're getting all the information together, we said, um, can we have your latest set of accounts? He said, which ones do you want? We said, well, the last three years. He said, no, no. Do you want the real ones or the ones I supply to the authorities? <laughs> right. So um, we stopped the project because there's no way um, we're going to take a business to market that's got dodgy accounts. English expression, I know. Um, but I, I bounced it back to him and said, look, I'm not taking an ethical stance on what you've been doing. All I'm saying is, how would you feel if we put you in front of several of your direct competitors who might want to buy your business and it becomes clear that you've been evading tax? How are you going to feel about that? So um, it, they're not all as extreme as that, but there's usually accountancy principles that seem to be quite flexible. And we know from experience of doing this, it's going to unravel in due diligence. So we, we want it sorted. We want to understand it and we want to regularize the account so that we know when we get in front of the buyer's acquisition team that we're not going to have any surprises. And if there are some things that can't be unraveled before we go to market, then we need to disclose that right. to, the, to the buyer before they make an offer. And I, I think just to give people who are listening an example of, of what you're talking about, and this is a really simple example, but it's one that I've seen quite often when you recognize the sale. So I've seen a lot, for example, of, of fitness businesses, gymnasiums and such. Yeah. And people will come in and they'll buy a one year membership. And for simplicity's sake, the business will recognize it as a sale. Maybe it's $120 for the annual membership. I know that's not a real price, but they'll record it on that day. But in reality, what, what, the, the sale that they've made is they made a $10 sale for this month's workouts and they owe the customer $110 worth of exercise. And so 
done properly, you would record it as a deferred revenue as an obligation or money borrowed from the clientele. Yeah. But it's almost never done this way, except when you get into more sophisticated businesses where they're actually trying to push revenue into future periods because they don't want the tax liability brought into the future, into the present. Right. And so in much bigger businesses, um, you know, there's all kinds of room for policy changes that can have a, a, a material outcome on what the bottom line is. You, you raised one depreciation and I've always been taught that in bigger companies, that's the place where the stuff can be hidden because it's so difficult for anyone to come in and audit and find out that certain pieces of equipment have been put into the wrong class. They're being depreciated more quickly or, or what have you. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And, and of course, uh, a lot of accountants, most accountants and buyers w- will have a multiple of bottom line profit and that depreciation figure affects it, can affect it significantly. Hmm. Um, on top of financial reporting rigor, you've got skeletons in the cupboard and tax irregularities as number six, seven, and eight. What kind yeah. of skeleton? Can you give us an example of a skeleton in the cupboard that you found? Yeah, criminal record. Okay. <laughs> no, no, you don't something- believe in second chances, Rob? Come on. <laughs> yeah, we are all sinners. That's what he said to me. Um, it, it, it came up, we weren't in due diligence, fortunately, but it came up with one prospective buyer. We sat around the table and he showed something from the internet, which is our client had, had spent six months in jail, um, for stalking a woman. In fact, he, he ended up in the backseat of her car without her knowledge one evening and, and did six months in jail. So those sorts of things aren't helpful in a negotiation. <laughs> Because it, we can all fall short of the uh, uh, of the legal system sometimes, but the fact that he didn't share it with us, he he hid it. It comes up because buyers are going to do some early due diligence. They want to find out because they're buying not only buying the business, they want to see about the integrity of the the owner. Because if they could, if he can do that and spend some time inside and hide it then what else is he hiding in the business? Mm. So that's what I mean by skeletons. The, the internet's a wonderful thing, but nothing's ever lost in the internet. Well, and, and, the, and the, the goodwill of that business could be impacted. You know, it's, it, the, there could be people in the marketplace who know about the, the criminal case who may choose not to do business with that company. And that stigma can be attached to it even after a transaction. Well, well an, another one, it was a company we actually sold right? This is quite a few years ago. We sold them. And then the buyer contacted me a month later and said, uh, I need to have a private word with you, Rob, the company that we bought through you. Um, we found all sorts of folders in the filing cabinet. Now that we own the business, they've been doing a clear out. And they, they found um, court papers that our client from going back years and years where it'd been done for copyright fraud. <laughs> so there's, there's now, there's things that happen, and I'm sure something like that, where you've you've been prosecuted successfully, um, and it is pertinent to the business. Um, you make the decision: Do I want to sell? If I do want to sell, I've got to disclose this information at some point, and it certainly has to be before an offer is made, because if you if you if it comes out after an offer, they're going to chip on price. They're going to use that as leverage. 
So um, that's what I mean by skeletons. It doesn't happen all the time. The, the reason these, these examples sit in my mind, despite the passage of time, is they are fairly rare. But we do do some due diligence on a prospective client. We do go on the internet. We put their name in and, and, and see what comes up because that's what a buyer will do. Yeah. That, great points. Um, number nine, owner does not have an open mind as to who might buy them. Yeah. I, I, ran yeah. into this, I ran into this uh, just a couple of weeks ago, um, a, a trucking company, and the owner you know, really believes that the buyer is going to be someone who's going to come and buy them and do business the way they do it in the same location with, you know, under the same circumstances. And I said, I said, buddy, your industry is filled with these giant companies who may simply want to acquire you for the equipment in the accounts and let's pack up the office. And, but he, he wasn't willing to understand that this is a possibility. I know. Um, I, again, it goes back to my comment when, when you've particularly with business owners that have got quite a successful business, they tend to listen to their own hype. Mm. And um, they believe in what they're thinking. And they, the, the central point is that they're right. And so the way that we try to unlock that with a prospective client is to, to repeatedly say to them, keep an open mind. You might be right. It might be the one or two companies that you've mentioned. Or it could be a company that you've never heard of in the industry, maybe in a different country that has the most strategic region to purchase you. Um, so just keep an open mind. Um, most business owners are quite blinky. You know, the horse racing, they, they wear yeah. the blinkers. <laughs> um, we try and take the blinkers off. And half the, I've been doing this 20 years and I've been responsible and overseeing 356 successful transactions in 20 years. Half that time, the buyers, at least half the time, those buyers, eventual buyers, didn't come from an obvious source. Hmm. So we, we know that the, the right fit acquirer at the right price may not be on their radar, but we'll find them. Okay. Um, and then the, the follow on one, number 10, is owner inflexibility regarding a deal structure. This is, this is the same sort of thing. <laughs> they, they've been yeah. told... And we run into this a lot in Canada because there's tax advantages to selling shares. Um, sellers will say, no, this is the way it has to be. And I'll say, well, do you know what the tax liability is if you sell the assets? And they have no idea. They have no right. idea. So, no, I, it, it regularly comes up because, um, well, in fact, it happened uh, a couple of years ago. We sold a business. Well, the client that we took on, she wanted 10 to 12 million pounds for her business. And... She wanted it all cash on completion, no deferred structure at all. Unmarked bills? <laughs> in, a, in, a, in an airport lounge <laughs> with a couple of Versace suitcases. Um, and she didn't want to sell to private equity and venture capitalists because she'd heard that they're really nasty people. Hmm. You know, they'll just strip the business. And she wasn't going to stay on for longer than three months. So cash on completion, no private equity or VCs, and three-month handover. Right. So we said to her, look, keep an open mind. She said, no, I, I know what you're saying, Rob. I know exactly what I want. <laughs> anyway, we sold that business in just over a year. We sold it for $22 million, not 10 
um, a four-year uh, stay-on period because, oh, and, and it was a private equity firm in the US <laughs> that bought. <laughs> now, when I, when I, after we had the success fee come through into our bank account, I challenged her on it. I said, you told me <laughs> these were your three must-haves and all three of them were broken. She said, well, I fell in love with the business again because we had the right fit buyer. You know, they, they, so I think often with business owners, they, they've been in the, they need, they need a re-injection of energy, enthusiasm, and vision. And that can come with the right strategic acquirer. Right. So, uh, so look, she got 22 million. Okay. It was spread over four years, but she got a ca cash on completion number as well in that yeah. 22. What was exciting for her about this is the new buyers brought the resources to achieve things that she'd always wanted to do and, and couldn't on her own. Yeah. Yeah, and she still remained in post as CEO. Um, and also it helps on the psychological, and she did mute it to me afterwards. It's a gradual letting go over the four years. She's just kind of getting used to the fact that she sold her shares. Hmm. So it, it's a, a long goodbye in a sense. <laughs> and, and, and who wouldn't stay on in their business for another 12 million quid? Well... <laughs> Many people would be convinced. This leads directly though into number eleven, which is seller mindset, and yeah. then, and then number twelve, you put if you don't like them, period. Yeah, it's usually related to number eleven. So, would this woman would that be an example of seller mindset, or are you thinking about something else here? No, I liked her. Um, I think even though you can always tell, even though you challenge, a I'm a fellow business owner. So I feel like I, I can challenge the status quo and the mindset. They may still hold their view, but if you get a twinkle and a smile, a twinkle in their eye and a smile, you know, they've kind of accepted that you could be right. They hope that they're right and you're wrong. Um, that's fine. I think where, where it's rare, there aren't many people that I've come across that I thought, no, but there are a few over 20 years. Um, and I not it's not a personality thing. It's how are they going to perform in front of a buy-side team? Hmm. If they're arrogant, egotistical, closed in their mindset, it's going to be a hell of a job to sell that business. And and so we do we do spend quite a bit of time. Most people will receive coaching before we put them in front of real buyers with real money. Um, we, some of them, we, we, we coach them and then they forget the coaching and they revert to type in a meeting. So we, 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 we get a pen and we, um, we, we dig them under the table with the pen. Um, I think sometimes it might be once a year, I come across a potential client and it do, we don't share the values. And, and, and it isn't a taxi regulation. I just think they're not going to perform in the best sense of the world in front of potential buyers. And the likelihood of completing that transaction is minimal. And I don't want minimal chances because that's the reverse of our methodology. So mm. I'd rather let them go. It doesn't happen that often, but it happens sometimes. So... One of the things that, uh, and, and, and I think this is important for people who are listening to understand, is that your firm's focus is on strategic acquisition. So yes. these are businesses that we would often describe as middle market businesses. And you want buyers who are going to create synergies to make everything worth more. 
Yeah. And which, which is a, is, is very different from a lot of small business sales where it's a financial buyer. Someone wants to leave a job and they want to come in and become the owner manager. Now that being, and I wanted to just address that for a moment because you've got a, a couple of things here that you use to filter out weak buyers because you don't want to obviously waste time with someone who's not a good buyer in, in my small business practice. Oftentimes the buyer were looking for the right skill set because the buyer is going to become the manager, right? You've got a very short list here. There's only two things. And the number one thing I've already mentioned is that they have to be a strategic buyer, which means that somehow this acquisition will add to their, you know, greater financial viability, whatever, whatever business they're in. But the second one here, um, well, I'll let you, I'll let you describe it. And this is a big topic lately on LinkedIn. What's the most important thing you look for in a buyer? Uh, that they've got the money. Show me the money, Jerry Maguire said, didn't he? He did. Um, yeah. And, and the reason this is such a big topic is that the number of people who Clinton Lee describes as one pound Charlie's, the number of people out there who are making contacts with business owners and brokers who have no money is just growing exponentially, isn't it? I know. Yeah. And, and, and yeah, Clinton, Clinton does affectionately refer. He loves them all. The one pound Charlie's um, we never meet them <laughs> because what we're looking for are companies with a strategic advantage and a reason to buy who've got resources. Um, it, it may be a mixture of funding sources, but you can already tell, you can already see proof of funding. So the people that have got plenty of ideas, but no money, never see the light of day with our clients. Never. Um, what, and is this, what they, is this something that you've had to apply since you got started or have you had this approach back from the beginning? No, uh, since we started, it's only really in the UK in the last three, four, five years that this has been, been a thing. Hmm. Um, so we filter those out where they've tried, they've got rather, um, smart because now, um, when they make contact with us, usually by email and um, they describe themselves as private equity, hmm. they're not private equity firm. Well, there is a private is an individual with no money that calls themselves private equity. They're, they may be a private investor, but they haven't got any money. Um, and of course, the problem with people who haven't got any money that want to buy something, they have to find a funding source. And if they go externally um, to a bank, it's the bank that will value our client's business, not the person that's made contact. So uh, that's not to say there are some private investors that have got the industry skill, experience and expertise, and they've got money. So they've been successful in their previous business enterprises, they might get some supplementary funding. They might want our client to do um, a bit of vendor financing as well. And somewhere in the middle, there's a deal to be had. So mm. we, it's not that we don't deal with private investors, but they're, they're, these are multimillionaires. They're self-made people who can actually show us a bank statement with the funds that they've got or several bank statements. So yeah. Um, it's so it's a thing, but it's not the industry we we occupy. Those people will just waste our time, mm. and because what they want to do is buy a business for a pound or, or or very little money up front, and that doesn't work for our clients. So, 
Uh, one of the reasons why our multi average multiple earnings that we achieve for our clients is over nine, nine times earnings of EBITDA, adjusted EBITDA as well, before you get in there, David. <laughs> Real profit. Um, and that's because we're hitting, uh, we're, we're, we're concentrating and focus on strategic purchases where one and one equals three or four or five. Mm. And I, I, know, I know I've mentioned to you, there are two multiples in a strategic purchase, not one. There's the seller's multiple and there's the buyer's multiple. And part of our job is to unearth both of those where we can find what, what our client's business will be worth to them over the next few years if they were lucky enough to buy our client's shares. Right. Because in a strategic acquisition, the acquirer is going to be able to somehow create greater efficiencies or maybe use the acquired business as a channel for other products they might have or, or take the products from the acquired business into their other sales channels or something. Yeah. 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 And, and two, two client and two databases. So the sales guys now have got and marketing have got two, sale, uh, two um, databases in which to upsell and cross sell. So um, I think the, the highest one we had last year was a multiple of 26. You see, an accountant couldn't work. They would defy logic. So the deal went through. You know, one of the things that we talked about last week is how you don't put an asking price on. And clearly yes. this is the reason why. Because, because you want a buyer to have an opportunity to get excited about what they're going to do with the acquisition, and which at the end of the day leads to a greater price for your client. Um, and you're I mean, very distinctly, your position is that you represent the seller. I mean, this, this is your role and it's, you know, the buyer and their team, it's up to them to decide what they're going to do. We let the market decide what our client's business is worth. Um, that's not to say that we don't have some in-depth discussions with our client before we go to market. We get two, two numbers from our client. We get their minimum walkaway price because we need to know what we're negotiating with. And we also get their aspirational price, the number they really want. And that's really important because if there's more than one shareholder, we need to make sure they're in agreement because they mm. may not be. And we don't want it to unravel in front of a prospective buyer. So, no, I, there is. I, I spent 20, uh, 40 years in sales. I know there's, a diff there's two schools of thought about price anchoring. Um, we've taken a decision, well, me originally, because I was a one-man band, that I wouldn't, I wouldn't advertise with a price because it would create a ceiling. Um, if we said offers in excess of 5 million, guess what we're not going to get? <laughs> so I don't want to put a ceiling on a business because we're selling to strategic purchases, which means um, if we get, we, we typically get eight buyers around the table, we get four offers. Those four offers will all be different. It's about 130% difference between the, the lowest and the highest offer. Mm. So we know that you can't value a business on a set of uh, a P&L on a balance sheet because otherwise those four buyers would come in roughly at the same price. They don't. Um, and then we reject all four offers. We go back uh, with a commercially reasoned argument as to why they should sharpen their pencil. <laughs> uh, <laughs> look, well, when, someone, when someone makes an off a first offer is never their best offer even if it's the headline price doesn't change it might be the terms that change so and 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 you know so a lot of the viewers of my channel are in the small business space 
just quickly, can you describe the average size of business that, that you're talking about here? Because this, this very is middle, this very much is middle yeah. market. You know, so discussion. we, we tend, we tend not to work with companies below 5 million us turnover. So that's revenue uh, for people. Revenue. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Revenue five, five million dollar revenue us. Um, it's five, five to 30 million is our, our sweet spot. When I first started, it was anyone hmm. that I thought I could sell. And I, I learned in the very small, the S of SME, it was a lot of hard work. It was harder than selling a larger business and less reward because we charge a 3% success fee. So who wants to work harder for less money? Right. So we've graduated four or five years ago, we moved um, the profile of the, co the companies we're more interested in working with. And so we set that threshold. It, it does mean when we do meet companies that are below that minimum threshold, it's not that we say goodbye. If we think it's a saleable entity and they've got a realistic price, we'll forward that referral on to a couple of our brokers that work in that lower space. I want them to be looked after. Hmm. So it's about choosing your market, isn't it? You can't be everything it is. to everyone. It's about defining who you're going to work with. But I, I thought that the the conversation here about how you vet your really okay. So what, a lot of the times when I describe to people a business brokerage business, I talk about how the sellers' businesses become items of inventory on the broker's shelf. If you want to think of the business broker like a shopkeeper, right? Yeah. And so anyone who's operating a shop is going to decide what kinds of products they want to have on their shelves and what they want to be known for. And they're, you know, if you decide that you're going to be selling the, the high end ladies handbags then you're not going to, you know, fill your shelves with the, you know, cheaper quality items, right? You're going to be very selective about which things that you put on the shelf. And, and a lot of the operators in the brokerage industry in general, they, don't have the luxury of doing that. They're, they're, they're just, and, and I don't think a lot of business owners realize this, but there's a lot of people in the brokerage industry who are working really hard just to try to make that paycheck for themselves. And they, it, you know, I think that money is not necessarily the greatest motivator in the world, but the lack of money will motivate people to do things they never thought they would do. Yeah. And I know it's a different climate in North America because it's more successfully contingent based. Whereas in the UK, it's a different marketplace. It's normal to charge a retainer and then a success fee. That's the norm here. Um, although I was told when I set up in the UAE in Dubai, I was told that people don't pay retainers in Dubai. Well, they do. No one's ever asked for them. Because <laughs> you know what? Pe people will pay if they if they've got certainty or trust about an out outcome sure and uh, and and it helps when you've spent 10 years and several hundred transactions or 20 years and several hundred transactions um so people don't mind paying the retainer they see that as quite um fair in terms of you're engaging someone every month to work for you on this project called selling a business so I've, I, I love it when I'm told in a country, well, we don't do that here, Rob. And in fact, evolution is going to operate in 14 other countries over the next five years. We're in the Middle East. We've got another 14 countries, including Canada and the US. You'll be pleased to, you'll be pleased to hear. Um, but I, I, 
people don't mind paying a premium. We are reassuringly expensive on our retainer. Um, we found that we do less transactions, but the the net margin is is much much higher. We 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 can create a forty percent net margin in a typical year. That's oh, a wow. good business, and it also means that I can now retire at the uh, the old age of fifty seven. I could I could retire this evening, but I choose not to because I love the work that I do. I and I can sleep at night knowing that we're trying our best for our clients, mm. and if they've gone through the American gladiator and, and uh, one of the 12 hurdles they've fallen at, we will help them because we will parachute in one of our uh, mentors or uh, consultants to help put that thing right in their business or a number of things. So we don't, we don't, we don't say don't darken our door. We just say, look, we can't sell it for the price you're looking for. So you can right. either go to a competitor and spend money with them, or let's work with you. Let's put those things that we think are deal breakers or will hamper getting the price that you're looking for. Let's work together over the next year or two. That is, a, I don't know about overseas, but that, that's quite an unusual model in the UK. A, a, a business sale transactor that also does consultancy and coaching. That's rare. It's, it's, it's coming in North America because, right. especially with this pandemic, yeah. uh, because I know there's a lot of brokers out there who are seeing their, their activity decline in one of the hot topics in the industry is creating other methods of revenue, including things like consulting work. And, but it's not every broker who's able to execute on that. It's it, no. in a lot of ways is a different skill set. Um, Rob, thank you so much for joining us. It was a great interview. And if people want to find you online, what's the easiest way for them to make contact with you? Uh, the, the company above, just put .co.uk. You'll find me there. You've got my email address and my mobile number, cell number. Um, get in touch. Love to have a conversation. Uh, I'm running a group um, coaching uh, initiative to help SMEs that are going to struggle through this, what's going to be quite a, a, an in-depth recession. I want to take 15 business owners around the world on a journey for 12 months. I'll coach them and we're going to create a book at the end of the 12 months that will supply a chapter each about the highs and lows of trying to grow a business in a recession. And then we'll publish on Amazon. Oh, it'll be a great read. Yeah. It's a great the, idea. The, the, the content will come from business owners. Yeah. Cool. All right. Well, thank you, Rob. And, and for everyone out there, if you enjoy stuff like this, um, you should head over to davidcbarnett.com. On the left-hand side, there's a place to sign up for my email. Um, I send out emails every day and once a week there's a new video digest for new interviews like this or other videos answering questions are released and I'd be very happy to have you on the list. Thanks Robert and have a great day. Take care. Bye-bye everyone.